All right. Welcome, everybody, to Equality Podcast, Season 1, Episode 8. Are we on Episode 8 already? Episode 8. Are we on Episode 8 already? Episode 8. Are we on Episode 8 already? With guest Angela Penton. We're so happy to have Angela with us today. Angela is the process detective, owner of Openfield Process Improvement from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Her mission is to help build systems that work for people. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I've been listening, so thank you uh, for inviting me on to be a guest. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, you're an entrepreneur, uh, run your own business. We do a lot of the same kind of work, um, helping companies improve their processes, improve their business outcomes, right, through process improvement. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit more about yourself and Openfield uh, CI? Yeah, well, I um, I started this uh, last year, actually right before the pandemic started, and uh, I've been I've actually come from the world of um, trades and being a builder and being a process user, more of a and um, working. I I was also an artist for twenty years while I was doing being in the trades. And I think I've always been um, doing process improvement and learning about it without actually having the framework of lean. And, um, and then I decided at 40 years old to level up a bit. And I went and studied industrial engineering technology. And it was like an instant match. The way they advertised it uh, was, um, to attract students was like professional problem solver. <laughs> and that's pretty much what I do. So I come from the from ground up of working as a um, worker, but you know, the people that, that do the work every day. And um, I think I bring a lot of that perspective in. And then when I started working with senior management teams, I was able to bridge that gap a lot easier. And so I think I have a special place in my heart for making company processes work for people because I know uh, from personal experience that when you make, um, when the, the company's processes really work for people and the obstacles are removed, then they can, um, you can get a lot more done. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. I think I've seen, you know, some of your, pragmatic approach in, you know, your online presence. Um, and I get along pretty well with everybody, you know, except snobby people. I don't really, you know, get along with them very well. But I have found that people who, uh, you know, sort of actually do work before getting into management and especially um, process improvement, 
um, and continuous improvement tend to do better. Uh, part of that is just sharing language uh, with the people doing the work. Um, and part of it is just, you know, the real life and textbook, like they don't match, you know, um, mm -hmm. at least that's been my experience. So I appreciate, you know, my schooling, you know, informal education, um, but it, it uh, supplements kind of the real education that I've gotten working with actual people and actual companies. Um, and ironically, you know, the, I think the one topic that I had one class um, in grad school and it was a good class, but it was too theoretical uh, on leadership. Um, you know, that's the, uh, the difference maker, especially nowadays when you can get so many answers on Google. Um, but can you persuade others to improve for the better? Um, so I don't know, hopefully the education system is evolving and we'll kind of catch up with that, but that's just my experience. And I think it's, um, I think we're starting to move past the idea of, um, you know, we're, we're moving past the kind of class system when it comes to who does what kind of work, you know, like the mm -hmm. white collar versus the, um, versus trades it's not versus you know but that but that perception i think pe people the trades and when i say trades i also mean you know technicians um people that fix equipment people that are assembly line workers like there's a there's starting to be an elevation of like how important these people are to business and that um there's not, it's not really acceptable anymore to, to, uh, <laughs> to, to people if they, if you want to keep good people, it's not really acceptable anymore to, um, cause there's, there's, it's easy for people to find other jobs, you know, once they get yeah. their skills, but yeah. And I think, but like you were saying about the education part, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it, it gives me a little bit of a, a, a you know a unique perspective that other maybe other people that come into industrial engineering uh, don't have as much but without doing like my green belt and without learning project management and learning the statistics and and really learn a lot more about business like I never would I wouldn't have been able to make that jump like I had to have that educational that really solid educational piece now my I was really lucky because my program wasn't like a university program. Uh, so it was a tech, like industrial engineering technology. So mine was right at, right from the very beginning, we were working in the field. So we, we, were, we were working and doing projects in the field at the exact same time as doing our exams and studying statistics and everything like that. Um, oh, great. But the, like yeah, my, my course, what's that? I like that approach. It was like an apprenticeship almost, right? Yeah, and some yeah. of the places I worked, uh, we would do like a few months. So I was like doing almost like doing um, contract work right from the very beginning uh, and work, getting a chance to work with different types of companies. Some were manufacturing. I worked for a healthcare company. I worked for, um, I worked for an airplane part manufacturer, a box printer. Um, yeah, so it was really great to get that different experience. Awesome. But yeah, the education piece 
essential. Well, thanks for telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. And we're thrilled to have you on today. And my understanding is you'd like to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is why it's so important to go to where the work is being done uh, to solve real business problems. So tell me a little bit more about that. So that is something that, um, again, when I was studying lean and learning about what the foundations of it were was that was the thing that really stood out to me on a um, really deep level that it can be looked at as a platitude we talk about going to the gemba you know and it can be sometimes it's overused as this thing oh yeah you should do this you should do this but i find that it is often skipped over because people don't have enough time they think they don't have time they don't want to actually see the problems or they want to um they're really operating from a place of assumptions that their data is telling them a certain thing or they the things that used to work a certain way five years ago or they've got SOPs written about how the process works and they they make major strategic decisions based on things that aren't actually happening and there's a wealth of information out there about reality that can inform them in my experience so one of the things that um, I really tried to think about when I got the invite from you guys was, have I ever been able to really solve a problem for a company? Have I ever actually been able to really move forward on a project and get results without doing a lot of work in the field and going to the people that do the process? And so I really tried to think like, and I, I don't think there's any project I've worked on where I didn't need to go out and get information past the original information I was given. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. So that is, it's just something that I feel that out of all the stuff that I've learned in Lean, it is the most true and the most consistently required. It's like the, the foundation of it all for me. <laughs> yeah. And have you found that um, leaders sometimes have go to Gemba uh, almost as a, a checklist, you know, on their, their daily leader standard work. Uh, but when a problem comes up, they don't go to Gemba. Have you experienced? That's interesting. Um, well, to be honest, um, the companies that I've worked with, except for one, um, none of them have actually been lean organizations. I came in as a process improvement or process specialist person, bringing these ideas uh, with me um, and they were kind of novel. So the idea of going to the Gemba or going to where the work is done is not something that was part of their daily routine anyway. So I had the job of trying to um, bring this practice in uh, to an organization that wasn't used to doing it. And so 
I would say that they weren't necessarily practicing going to the Gemba as a regular thing, but that um, the reasons they weren't going um, were more about an assumption that the people that were out there doing the work just didn't know better. Like they just didn't have the full picture of what the business needed. So involving them just took too much time because you'd have to explain things. And, um, and then as that happened, you could see the disconnect between and the divergence of like what was actually happening in the business versus what the leaders were trying to make happen. Yeah, um, interesting. So does well, that make I, sense? It, it does make sense. And I like that you brought up, um, you know, a lot of your clients not being lean companies. Uh, that's certainly true on my end. And in fact, I would say that my broad experience is that uh, lean has a bit of a um, reputation in the business world of being uh, too cost intensive, too complicated, not applicable to anything other than automotive manufacturing, scary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I intentionally don't market, you know, my services as lean, um, but instead focus on mm -hmm. um, operational excellence. I can help you make your business better. Now, all the tools that I'm using came from Lean um, or Six Sigma, if we're talking about the project management side and statistical analysis. Um, but uh, that's, a, that's a real thing where people can be uh, turned off. You know, it, and we did it to ourselves really because, I mean, if you have to speak Japanese to make your business better, come on. I mean, really? Even go to Gemba, why do we say yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's one of the first thing I learned was when I started going out in the field and talking to technicians and talking to, I remember one of the first um, big project, independent projects I had as a contractor um, after school, you know? And I uh, went out and I, was so fresh and excited and I was like going in and talking about the Demaic process and trying to do presentations on uh I was so such a little purist and like just so um not recognizing how foreign it was to people and then I and so I just over time I've just stopped using any I don't say Gemba I have said it for a few people because they when they start asking questions when they start when they start being interested in why do you why do you go out and get because I kept saying well let's I'm going to go out and do some field work and come back and and luckily I've had some super supportive people on my teams that have been like they've seen the results so they're open to it and they're like how do you do that so then I'll start telling them oh, well this is the origin this is where I learned it's you know in lean it's called going to the Gemba or or the, and then this is why this is what it means and and then it get, generates a little bit of interest that there's something backing me up. It's not just my crazy brain. It's like, there's, it's a, it's been done, you know, I'm not, it's not something new, but something natural to me to do. But no, I think, um, 
and I think I'm, I've never been a purist at anything. I'm kind of like, I get a lot of, I've gotten a lot of flack on my LinkedIn content. I'm talking about link, my social media, because I, I, I'm one of those people who uses the tools sometimes willy nilly. I, I do demaic and lean and I, and whatever situation is arising, I try to think of whatever way that audience, I can relate to them and help them get over to the next level. And sometimes that has, you know, it doesn't have a lean name. It's like something that I, I've combined, you know, spaghetti maps with time studies and, you know, whatever it needs. Cause if I only have like a couple days to get data, then I, you gotta get creative. And because I haven't worked for an organization that was already completely like had a lean foundation, um, and I was not in a position to, to, I didn't have the position of influence to go in and say, we're gonna make this a lean company. And the leadership was just like, yeah, whatever. Just remove this obstacle now, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which is fine. I mean, that's their objective, right? That's what I'm there to do, to make things happen. But- I found it um, more difficult to work with self-proclaimed lean companies to be honest with you um partly because they're frequently not very good at it uh, and everybody is a, a little too over educated <laughs> and under practiced um but good so we're talking about yeah. the importance of going to gemba and uh, you know specifically dealing with um you know leadership in the company like before you make a decision Right. Um, and you, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of leaders make assumptions about their problems without going to see for themselves. Um, you know, tell me a little bit more about that and your, your experience with that. Yeah. So, um, there's a couple different takes. I think there's one of them is the how the leaders um, of the company experience the, pro the symptoms of the problem. And they're seeing it from maybe like an executive summary part where they, or they see it um, because they're involved with other things. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily because they don't want to, but I was in a position once where the, the request for the contract was to make their people work faster. Because the way they were, the way they were experiencing it and seeing it, they literally had a perch where like the owner would like walk up above the work area, and see everything. And he saw people redoing things, standing around. Um, there's a lot of standing around that is because, as you know, because there's a piece of equipment not available, because there's a, a problem that or machine they're trying to jerry rig, because there's some kind of issue. Um, because they've got too many people in one area and not enough people in another area, right? Yeah, and so they didn't. They didn't have the reason. Yeah, I'm going to go off on a tangent on that one a little bit. Leadership conflating the problem and the solution. So I run into this all the time. We're all here. We just need our people to work faster, or even we need less waste. Well what's your actual yep. problem? You don't know what your problem is. You haven't defined it. You've jumped straight to a solution and it's usually not a good one. Um, it's the mm -hmm. only way that you know how to frame a problem because 
in some leadership cultures, you're sort of trained to always have all the answers instead of be the, being the person that asks the questions, right? Um, yeah, that's a really good point, yeah. And I was guilty of that even when I first started in this career because of, you know, wanting to do a good job and, and being, say, coming in as the only lean or process specialist person in the company, you know, that's what my role was called. I felt like I needed to have solutions right away. I needed to present something that, um, and then I quickly learned that, um, you know, I made a few mistakes where I just, I didn't come up, like the solution just wasn't based in reality. I needed to get more information. But um, the other, yeah, the other thing is the, the um, with the, so people wanting them to work faster. And I think another thing that's happening, and maybe you've experienced this too, is that people, that companies are becoming more data-driven. And so they're getting more and more data and they aren't really making, they aren't really understanding what the data is telling them. So they're getting a report that's that filters through various biases, like the finance department gives them one and you know, sales department gives them another. And they're left with this big pile of data and they don't, um, they're making major strategic decisions on this data that is, looks pretty and it's in a pie chart, so it must be true. And they're not actually seeing the context behind these, the, their numbers. They're not seeing the, the real context of um, what is, it's not really telling them the problem. It's telling them the symptom again. And so people say, well, so they're not looking at, is this data real? Is this data actually telling us something they make an assumption that the data is real. So they pass down yet another uh, solution that this, we're going to do this new system. Or like say, for instance, I was just on like a big ERP transition. So change the ERP system, massive, massive decision for the company, massive change. And a lot of things happened uh, based on um, an assumption of what the, what the processes were. So this is basically how we do it in the company. And there's everybody at every single branch was actually doing it differently. So you come in with a, with a standardized system and lay, lay down a completely standardized system on top of a completely unstandardized process. Yeah. Uh, so that another, that's another thing of not going to the Gemba to actually validate what's happening. Yeah, very common. My grandfather was an engineer um, and he used to joke about SAP in the 80s and they would advertise that companies that switched to SAP saw 30% improvement in productivity. And he said that was true, but the reason that they saw the improvement was not because they were using SAP, it's because they had to standardize before they could use software. Um, and he always got a good belly laugh out of that one. Yes. So here yeah. I am, gosh, uh, 20 years later, getting my master's degree and taking a course on ERP implementation. And, you know, the class starts out with only 7% of implementations will succeed. 
Um, and the rest of the class was just a commentary on like that opening paragraph, right? Um, and that's the, the, the biggest thing is just that companies and the people that make up companies are trying to win every day and they're doing kind of whatever it takes and there's no margin in the business to absorb um, stopping the workflow if things aren't right. And, you know, workarounds become almost mandatory at that point. Uh, and so the yeah. company is, itself is introducing the special cause of variance if, if we're approaching it from a statistical sort of standpoint. Um, and we end up being not our own worst enemies, but certainly not our own best friends. Um, and in my experience, you know, training people to take a step back and not do that um, is pretty challenging. Yeah. Um, it's funny you talk about the workarounds because like my, in my experience, and I know this is another kind of platitude, but I do see it as true, true in most circumstances is that the people out there closest to the customer that have that clock on them that are producing stuff, uh, they, um, they actually come into work wanting to do the right thing and wanting to get their work done to a high level of quality. And it's really, it's a shame when they're constant, when they have system obstacles every day that they need to make hurdles over or equipment that is just old, they don't have a preventative maintenance system. Um, they don't, they're dealing with real tangible obstacles in their day-to-day -day work that are preventing them from reaching these higher uh, goals that the company needs to meet. And the workarounds that people come up with are genius. Like some, sometimes not like the safest thing, but the, or, you know, things, but the way that they will do whatever they need to do to serve their customer and the way they'll bend the rules and the way all the little secret processes that exist in a company to make it run every day. It's make, it's work, they work, they are, they, people are proud of them. People are like, look at this friggin' thing that I built with my bare hands to make this changeover work way faster. Um, I know we need this other piece. I'm just, you know, giving a basic generalization of some stuff I've seen, um, but they're genius. And I actually, you know, I, I actually sometimes find, have found things that I've, you know, actually imp helped implement at other branches or other places because it's like, yo, that's a great workaround, especially when you're dealing with software that's like rigid, like you can't bend the rules of the software. So they find ways around it um, or the, with individual customers. But the only problem is that it's not, it's not the only problem, but leaders don't know the level of secret, uh, secret processes, I'll call them that are in their company. And so when they do need to standardize because they're trying to scale something and they don't know about these things, um, they might look at it as a lack of compliance. They're not seeing the intelligence and the creativity that could be harnessed to actually, um, because the people, like people will, before they jerry-rig something, they will often complain. 
or they will try to bring up with their supervisor. They'll talk about it among, with each other. Like, God, this is so annoying. This thing keeps happening. Or this piece of software, like every time, you know, if we just had some Wi-Fi boosters in here, we'd be able to use our tablets to do this instead of having to go over to the computer. Wouldn't that be awesome? And then someone from the IT department is like, no, sorry, not in the budget. So they just say, well, okay, that's when you hear stuff like, that's not my job above my pay grade. When you start hearing stuff like that, it's because people have complained. They've got the ideas, they know the problem. Um, it doesn't get fixed. So they continue on with their jerry-rigging. Yeah. Ingeniously. And eventually the, the workarounds become the process. I work with one yeah. company and they had spent millions of dollars on a tier one ERP. And this thing could do everything. Um, and if you want to know how to use it, all you have to do is Google, you know, there's YouTube videos, whatever. It's a common, you know, world-class ERP. And this uh, particular mm -hmm. facility did about 200 trailers a day, you know, inbound and outbound, maybe more. And they were using a spreadsheet to track the trailers in and out of the building, which really got me scratching my head because that's what an ERP is supposed to do. Like that's its main job. <laughs> that's what you paid for. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody, you know, somebody, somebody paid the money for it. Nobody knew how to use it or configure it properly, but everybody knows how to use Excel, right? And so next thing you know, we're yeah. spending hundreds of labor hours per week just filling out a spreadsheet when the uh, software could do it all for you and generate reports and, you know, has a built-in dashboard, everything that you want, it can do for you. Um, and they were basically just using it for inventory management and the rest of it was um, manual. So that was a um, interesting situation, but that's what happens, right? Is something doesn't work, but we're not going to lose, you know, we're not just going to sit on our hands and say, well, I guess nobody gets paid today. Um, we find yeah. a way around it. And after enough time, that workaround becomes the approved process, right? And I think mm -hmm. that ties back in to what you were saying earlier, which was a really good observation. Um, you have leaders that aren't in the habit of uh, going to where the work is done to observe and sort of making decisions off of the basis of data, a spreadsheet, a report, something like that. And they won't understand the amount of friction or value loss that happens as you put a patch on top of a patch on top of a patch. And you can't see that. And numbers can't tell you that. Yeah. So you might see a 5% improvement yeah. in some metric quarter over quarter. What you can't see is all of the employees that are really fed up and uh, you know are, are thinking about what their options are because it takes so much work and so yeah. much mental stress to get that outcome. Yeah, with, with the, within the ERP system, the, you know, if a company say was working on on-time delivery as one of their key metrics in their company, and they're basing so many decisions on, well, this is our, this is one of our 
main thing on time delivery. This is how we know we're our supply chains working. This is how we know our production's working. Big all sorts of things going into this one little measurement. And all of the all people had to do was change the date, the customer required date. And there's their on-time delivery. Yep, we made it. So the company, the people, the leaders that figured out that that's what they did, that even though it's not compliance, it's not what you're supposed to do, getting that, um, like, you know, stick off their back of like, yeah, yeah, they know what they're doing. We, they, we need to, like that on-time delivery thing became a checkbox mm. of their performance or their bonus or whatever. So you do that. So it became an approved process. Um, so the company was spending a lot of effort trying to um, have a lot of have a lot of meetings about it, have a lot of wasted time talking about on-time delivery instead of talking about, um, you know, actually talking to customers. Are they getting their, you know, not going to the source of what are the obstacles that are blocking people from getting stuff to the customers and because they, the, some of the problems that companies are dealing with are so big, especially after years of adding these patches on, it becomes so complex. Some of these problems are so big that just the thought of having to really solve these major problems with inventory or space or um, processes that just don't work anymore for a big company it's too daunting. So it's easier to just get a new technical system or to, to get a new person in a new role to try to like to keep making change after change. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, the people that are doing the work just see it as, I think this where this rift between like management and the workforce staff gets bigger and bigger um, because um, so I don't need, I mean, I think that maybe, I don't know what you think about this, but sometimes maybe there's a, a perception from like senior leaders um, that they really, the people out, out in the field, they don't understand the business and that um, they don't, uh, it's gonna take, it's too much effort for not enough reward. So it's like they don't know how to ask the right questions because often the problems are not articulated in a term, they're not articulated in terms of ROI. They're not articulated in terms of like the metrics that are important to the long-term health of the company. They're very like immediate, tangible things. Yeah. Um, so it's like they don't know how to ask the right questions of each other. Like the people in the field are, yeah. They're not going to say like, how can I help you achieve your strategic vision? Like, tell me about your strategic vision. They're not yeah. going to ask those questions. And going the other direction, the kinds of things that uh, management can be interested in and the questions they ask sound just idiotic to the people doing the work, you know? Well, why do you care about your uh, hurdle rate, you know, in your margins, because if you don't fix this machine right now, you're going to go out of business. So let's solve that, right? And it's interesting because we've developed a lot of jargon around uh, talking to people. So you, you have go to Gemba, there's whole books on how to do a Gemba walk. Um, and they're necessary. In fact, I have a chapter in my book on 
you know, how to talk to people. Um, voice of the customer. You know, I, I took some training on voice of the customer, VOC, and your customers include your employees, it includes your internal customers, your external customers. And I just thought to myself, you know, all of this stuff is just how to talk to people. At the end of the day, we need to be talking to different stakeholders and on a regular enough basis that yeah. we can course correct uh, and identify uh, issues. Um, so a lot of what I do is work with management to help people be more human. The engineering side of what I do is a very, in my mind, is a very small part of helping businesses succeed. You know, having an employee suggestion board is completely meaningless if you don't use it to communicate with your employees. Um, same thing with some voice of the customer program. And I worked for a company where we would get a VOC score once a quarter. We didn't know what it meant, who was talking to whom, what the issues were. We got a 3.5. Well, what does that mean? Because it was a survey that was sent out by the sales and marketing department to different representatives of different accounts. And they would, you know, on a scale of one to 10, are you likely to recommend our company to a friend or coworker? You know, that sort of thing. Um, so they didn't understand what VOC, you know, really should be. But all it is is talking to people and having, you know, the approachability and humility to listen to another person's perspective. You know, it's not the end of the world. They, we hope that they disagree with me and with everyone else, because if we all agreed, we'd all be communists, right? <laughs> That's funny. Jake and I joke about how much Americans hate communists. <laughs> he can put something there, um, especially on Independence Day. I think for, I, I feel really privileged to be, uh, I find that a lot of my role is to become a liaison between different groups and between senior, like so vertical and horizontal liaison, communication liaison, where that's why I say, when people kept asking when I first started my business, well, what do you do? What do you do? It's so, it's hard to describe without sounding really technical. That's where I said process detective, because I really just go in, try, I just keep asking questions and I keep trying to investigate what's actually going on until we have that aha moment. So we break down that assumption and then two, like two different groups, all of a sudden are like, oh, okay, that's what's happening. So they're not lazy or, yeah. or they're not like just assholes trying to make us do stupid things, new things every month. And when they actually come up and I mean, I love even working across groups that are um, like say IT department and supply chain department or operations and IT is like one of my favorite intersections because I love like making that language make sense to each other. Um, but that it, it really, my job more and more comes down to communication and I'm doing, I find, I mean, I'm getting out of practice with statistics, honestly, <laughs> because I try to like keep, keep on top of like that part of the business, but that's not often what I, what I am end up asking to do so much of it. If my job ends up coming down to overcoming assumptions. So they tell me the statistic that they're looking for. 
and I'm not in my role as a like a lean practitioner. I find, um, and maybe it's because I'm working with smaller companies, but I find that I'm not just purely going out there and um, making making a metric like increasing metrics. Like I'm capable of doing that, but the only way that happens is first by like getting the buy-in, finding out what their real obstacles are. And finding out what is a good day to them, like how can, what does that metric even mean? Sometimes it's even replacing metrics. So you have this company metric. Okay, now let's make up our own metrics that will feed into that, that are actually meaningful to um, like how many times can you get the, uh, how many times is information coming from the salespeople that's incomplete where the production people have to go back and ask more questions and they have to go back to the customer how many defects are caused by communication breakdowns because they just don't have the right information or there was a mistake in the uh, the inventory was labeled wrong <laughs> on the shelf. No. Things like really tangible things, those all add up, but those metrics aren't, um, those metrics help the day-to-day -day flow work and they will, you have to just find ways to make those feed into a larger um metric that's important to an executive metric, say I'll call it. Sure, yeah. And I'm not sure it's even, if it's even needed to bridge, um, it's not even, I don't even know if you can get to the point where you can have the same metric. And that's an ideal situation, but you often don't have time. In my position, I, I might not have the leeway to do that. I'm in there yeah. temporarily. My fastest way that I have found to make things better for a company is to go right to the source, uh, especially if I'm going into a situation where, I mean, I have a lot of technical know-how. I'm really comfortable in shops and machines and everything, but obviously I don't know their process. I don't know every production and installation process out there. So the fastest way that I've always been able to work is to ask the people that do the work and they will educate me very quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's a, I don't know else to do it. Uh, yeah, it, it's very efficient, um, but there's more to it than that. So when I'm talking with Jake, sometimes we will um, talk about, you know, the most selfish sociopath in the world. Like, what would they do, right? And what's hilarious is most yeah. of the time they will do the best thing because even though they are a selfish sociopath they still want to win right so treating mm -hmm. your employees with respect for example you might hate people you might be an evil person but you're going to treat your people with respect so that they stay and produce and happy cows produce more milk and all of that stuff right um and so i think that even a sociopath would go to where the work is done and ask questions as the most efficient way of getting at usable facts. But if you are not an evil sociopath, there's an added benefit, which is you're forming relationships with the people that are putting bread on your table every night, right? Yeah, so there's a lot of talk, especially in you know bigger companies about um, how to prevent turnover. There, there's an ulterior motive, we'll say, but whatever works, right? But it's, um, people shouldn't be um, surprised at all 
or nervous to see the owner of the company or senior managers coming in. It shouldn't be like, oh, oh, so-and-so's here. Okay, put everything, you know, it shouldn't be this big thing. It should be a normal, a normal occurrence. And I think that with companies that do gamble walks, like that's, it. but you still have the, you know, the senior team coming around and, um, but one of the simplest questions, just asking, you know, um, of course, you know, there's the obligatory, how's your day going? What's up? How are you doing? How are the kids? Blah, blah, blah. But really just, you know, what's bugging you today? Or what is, what is the problem this week? Um, and if people are always saying there's no problem and you know that there's issues going on, that could be a reflection on you, maybe not interacting enough. I do want to get results. Um, I do want to get results quickly. And I know that like in order to do my job, uh, I mean, I've had to influence hundreds of people to do something they didn't want to do at all. That didn't even make sense for them that I knew that was problematic. And my job ended up being how to through this change that's inevitably going to happen. And I'm, my job is to try to smooth that transition and to try to gather up any risks and red flags to present to the senior team as quickly as possible to make sure that it didn't bite them later. So you're working very fast. Um, and the only reason I was able to get these people to do these, some of these projects that they were just like, oh, this is a nightmare, I don't wanna do it, is because I had spent months like talking to them every day and helping them on little tiny problems. And yeah. like they need their light is broken, getting them a new light. Um, you know, there's something that is they're racking, like some of their racking doesn't have bars across their top and it makes them nervous. And finding, you know, taking pictures of it and taking going to representing them and going to their senior manager or their manager and saying, like, look, this isn't really acceptable, safety, blah, blah, blah. And so and so is nervous and they're worried about reporting it. And uh, what can I do to help you? get this, these bars in as quickly. I'll go find you a good deal. Yeah. And being that support person and like actually jumping in and helping them wrap pal. If I'm in there collecting data and they're like, get out of my way. Cause I cannot, we need to get this, all this stuff out by five o'clock. Like actually just stopping and helping them wrap pallets or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's like in a smaller, bringing it, bringing that corporate thing back down to a more smaller business attitude where there's more of a connection between the goals of everybody. Yeah. So and forming those relationships, you know, through everyday interaction at Gembo, right? Um, provides you a basis for future improvement as well, right? You're building, you're building real relationships and some trust hopefully, if you're doing it right. Um, so that, you know, at some point you're going to ask people, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to change and it's difficult and, and it sucks. Um, and I know that. But they know who you are at that point. They know what you value. They know you care yeah. about them. Um, and so it's a different dynamic than that scary person from corporate who shows up once a year and screws up everything for everybody, right? Yeah. Well, one of the lines I find that actually has helped, and it's it's true, it's what I do, but what I'll say to people 
if they're really upset about this happening and they see they start you know treating you know getting upset with me like I am someone that's trying to ruin their day is basically like this is going to happen this change is going to happen and it's probably going to happen faster than your let this is an opportunity right now for you to put input into how it happens so you have a choice right now if you want to start helping me if you help me get this information and if you help me do these like you know whatever needs to be done basically if you help me write this training material or whatever it is if we work together you have a chance to actually have input you may not get rewarded for it but you have input into making this change easier for your team um are you in <laughs> and a lot of times they'll be like okay i'll do i'll help i'll help i love that approach. and um <laughs> and it's like it's not against the leaders and it's not it's not like trying to side it's not being false it's just really like this is happening like you are not you have a choice if you really hate it you can leave the company or you can do something else but like if you want to stay this is your chance to make this a little more palatable and fun and um and sometimes too it's about helping the company find the like i like to use that that software term like the minimal viable product minimum viable product yeah of like if you're making a change or you have to standardize like let's find the minimum viable things the situation that has to be done in order for this new tech to be implemented or this new this change to be implemented what are the things that have to change and what are the things that they can just keep and just like okay just keep doing those things they aren't perfect but like what is the thing that will that will make it all the groups happy and function together and the rest just kind of like let it go for now yeah <laughs> so that's a fantastic approach and you know the uh, minimum minimum viable product approach allows companies to uh, establish standards and get that culture in place without holding back the business. You know, I, I use the metaphor of a manual transmission in a car. You can't go from zero to fifth gear. You have to go to first and second and third. And sometimes companies are in neutral and they want to be Toyota. Well, you can't, that's going from zero to fifth gear, right? Your, your next step is not there. Yeah. And the MVP approach uh, allows a company to sort of establish the culture of we're going to have standards um, yeah. without bogging the business down with a bunch of add-ons that it's just not ready for and a bunch of precision that it just can't handle and still serve the customers, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's too, um, too much change all at once. People, um, we know everyone is, you know, scared of change and resisted just by nature. Um, what are some of the thing, what are some of the standards that you can put in place that will actually make people's jobs easier and help the company make more money? Like, I do believe that there are these, that it's not, doesn't have to be in opposition. Like there really are points out there that will work for everybody. Um, in my ideal world, like I'd be able to find those things on every job, you know, but sometimes it is just trying to help get people through a change and, and, and trying to keep help 
groups communicate. I just had one more thought too about why it's so important to go to the Gemba a lot and see go out there in the field every day is I find that, you know, sometimes when I'm first investigating an issue, um, the problem looks like it's in isolation. So you see, this is the area that it's in this process. It's this group of people or it's this machine or whatever. The, lower, the more you're out there and the more you talk to people and actually just as normal part of your day, for me, I find I start being able to make relationships between these problems. Like my brain starts connecting the dots between this conversation right. and that conversation and starting to see these big, broad problems that something in supply chain, how that's affecting sales or you start to see the cross problems and then you can start coming up with improvement projects that might have more impact in more areas. Whereas if you go out once a week, or if you go out just a, your obligatory amount to get a, only a very specific amount of information, um, you might end up working in working on a problem and neglecting, either missing an opportunity to have a big impact somewhere else or actually creating problems in other areas. So it's like a big puzzle. I think that's the problem solving part that I love, but um, you don't get that unless you have all those conversations and you're looking at the data. So you're looking at all this data and you're also backing it up and then the data starts to be really meaningful. Well, I can tell that you love it because that's you're really good at what you do. And I think that's a good place to wrap the episode. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on Equality Podcast. Angela, thank you for being with us. I'm going to put all of your contact information on the screen and down below in the description of the video section. Basically, I would like to leave that if you're already um, if you're already talking to people every day and that's how you solve problems, then just keep doing this. And if you are the if you if you're nervous about going out there, then um, just start tomorrow. Fantastic advice. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Bye now. Bye-bye.